This episode of Serverless Chats is brought to you by Stackery. This week, I'm chatting with Paul Swale about communication patterns in serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 41. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Paul Swale. Hey, Paul, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Thank you. So you are a cloud architect at Winterwind Software. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm an independent cloud architect. I work primarily with AWS, and I specialize in helping development teams ship their first serverless application into production. Um, I've been focused specifically on serverless for two years or so now, um, although I have been doing software development and professionally for about 19 years in total. Wow. Still not as old as me, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that you've been focusing on lately, or I think you're sort of making this transition um, into serverless first. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my my new, my website is currently in the process of being moved to serverlessfirst.com. So I think that basically um, serverless first is a methodology which I've sort of been taking with my clients that I've been working with and over the past couple of years where they're, they're used to more traditional ways of building serverless apps um, and they see the value of using serverless, but they can't use it for everything. So it's the approach of by default, your, your architectural decisions start with serverless services um, unless you can justify using something else. Awesome. All right. So I wanted to talk to you today because I don't know what happened, but somehow you've become one of the most prolific writers in serverless over the last couple of months, um, <laughs> you know, releasing a few articles or a few blog posts every week. And um, it's been awesome, right? Because every time we get more content and you answer more questions and you get deep onto one particular subject, I think it's super helpful. And one of the things that you focused on quite a bit, I think, has been this idea of, you know, these communication patterns in serverless applications. Yeah. Um, and you wrote two articles recently. One was called Seven Ways to Do Async Message Processing in AWS. Um, and another one was Inter-Service Communication Channels for Serverless Microservices in AWS. So both great articles. Definitely go to winterwindsoftware.com. Check those out. Um, very, very interesting stuff. But why don't you tell us a little bit, and maybe you can get us started um, in terms of uh, you know what what are what are the what are the main communication patterns in serverless, and why why is it so different maybe than um, a traditional application? Yeah, I think um, working with clients, a lot of my clients have come from the the monolithic architectural background and like asynchronous stuff. They may be aware of it, but they haven't used it a lot. So. There are AWS has a lot of services which does um, which around asynchronous messaging patterns and, and it's, it can be hard to understand what to choose. So a lot of it is just sort of documenting questions that clients have had for me. A lot of the writing is around that area. So um, yeah, we can we can go through the details of the in, lots of individual services that, that I discussed in the article. Um, yeah, but so let's let's start though maybe just thinking about um, the difference between asynchronous and synchronous, right? Because I think most people are very familiar with 
that monolithic approach of, or, and I should maybe take a step back. They're, they're used to that request response type mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. I make a request to a website or to an API, um, and that data comes back to me. So there's that one part, you know, sort of of that immediate response. And that's not going to change whenever you have a customer facing um, or a web facing side of things. But it's where the back end, um, it, you know, the back end is what gets different. And, and, and that is one of those things where I think when people are familiar with monolithic applications, they think, hey, I've got 15 different methods or functions or whatever that are all in one big application. And I can say, hey, I need to process the order. I need to pull the inventory. I need to send the message. And that's all in one app um, or one, I guess, big chunk of code, really. But when you start moving to this asynchronous thinking, we're starting to separate out these components separately. So what what do people have to think about when they start building that type of application? Yeah, there's there are quite a lot of things to think about. Um, so I guess a lot based on those um, the workloads. Firstly, is it if it's like a task or a job based type workflow you may want to do, or maybe that you need to notify a lot of other systems. Um, so based around that, that's a decision in itself uh, around what service you use based on the nature of the workload. Um, there are a lot of, sort of operational considerations, such around throughput, um, concurrency requirements, um, latency requirements, um, scalability of any downstream systems that you may need to talk to, um, message durability, um, your error handling and retry mechanisms. Um, so these are all things of, of co cost, of course, as well. Um, so these are all things that you need to consider around how you would structure um, any sort of any asynchronous messaging patterns that your workload requires. Yeah, and I think that makes I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think what you get people uh, what you get people sort of coming from the monolithic space or the traditional system space, and they move into distributed systems. Now there's this whole different idea of passing messages around, right? Like we're no longer using a single system. So now we're trying to communicate with multiple systems. And as you said, things like durability of messages, that becomes a huge concern or something like um, uh, the error handling, right? Like what happens when you send a message off, off into the ether um, and then you don't know what happens to it, right? Like, I mean, does it ever mm -hmm. get to its destination? How do you know a message was even sent if that information isn't recorded correctly? Um, so I, I think maybe that's another thing that is is interesting to me, though, is that even people who are uh, maybe come from distributed systems um, and think about, oh, well, I've got to set up a Kafka um, cluster or I've got to do something like that, that, that traditionally there has been a ton of stuff that you would need to do just to create the messaging components between these distributed systems. But serverless, uh, serverless changes that quite a bit. Yeah, it does. And um, I can echo those sentiments you said, like I, I used to, um, Back in my Microsoft.NET developer days, like setting up BizTalk servers, um, like something actually I knew how to do, and we did it in a few projects. But just the, the provisioning and management overhead of doing it, just even though it was a nice distributed messaging pattern, it was just so much effort to to manage. Um, whereas with with AWS serverless um, async services, like it's simply it's just create a few lines of YAML and. SLS deploy or whatever tool you're using to deploy it, and there, away you go. It's, it's you, you, the operational overhead is just significantly less. Yeah, I think that I think that makes a ton of sense. And and when you're setting up, you know, these distributed applications using serverless, and you're using one of these, say, pub subservices, for example, um, like SNS or EventBridge, um, it makes it really really easy. So maybe let's talk about uh, let's talk about pub sub for a second. 
Yeah. Um, so for folks who don't know, PubSub is uh, it's a system where you can you're you're a publisher and a subscriber. Um, so you can it's a way of decoupling um, separate services. If 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 you even think of your application as having separate services. And you can simply, something happens in service A and you can just publish an event um, and service B may need to do some processing on that. It, it can consume that event, um, but the actual um, message communication between those is managed by um, a pub sub system. Um, and within AWS, we have sort of two main pub sub systems with SNS um, and EventBridge. Um, I've been using SNS for a few years now. Um, I've just started using EventBridge um, the very similar feature set, although EventBridge seems to be it, um, the preferred solution amongst um, most serverless experts these days. I think mainly around it offers more event targets, and it had a particularly nice feature is around the schema registry. And um, mm. so, a big thing with PubSub is um, your different services. Um, there is a small coupling around the actual schema. Um, they are literally coupled, but they do need to know what shape the message is going to be. Um, the schema registry that EventBridge provides gives you a way if you're using a type language such as um, TypeScript or Java, um, you can download you can download um, type definitions. Um, based on the, the the events that are that are getting sent to it, so it means you your consuming application knows exactly what what to expect, and you can at, at compile time you 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 know um, how to work with your your messages. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, you know as you you said, it's uh, I think things are going to move to EventBridge. I think we've seen a lot of sort of uh, noise around this, um, and and I, I I've been using EventBridge in production now for uh, several months, and um, there are some really really cool patterns. That you can do, um, you know, just with that, with that, the, the huge throughput. I know there's some there's some concerns or some talk about some latency issues um, and things like that, but it also depends on you know what your workflow is. Um, but mm -hmm. SNS still has its place, right? So SNS still a great pub sub service um, that you may need to use. So let's talk about the the benefits of using asynchronous versus synchronous, right? Because I think that most people, again, going back to that monolithic example, it's all right, I, an order is placed. So I have a, maybe I have a, a function or a method in my system called process order. And then process order has to do the inventory. It has to do the billing. It has to do the, the messaging. It has to do the invoice creation or some of these other things. Um, and that all happens by using just, you know, internal method calls or whatever and, and easy to call those. Um, when you start switching over to distributed systems, um, you know, even, you know, you might have a billing service, you might have a, a invoice service, you might have a, a alerting service. And, and that is all, um, you know, uh, sort of a, a, a simple way to think about a, a simple way to think about it if you're doing um, uh, you know, sort of like a container-based system, and you might want to do uh, asynchronous communication that way. Um, but when you're using serverless, we're breaking it down into even smaller functions and things like that. So, um, but but what are those benefits? Like, what are the benefits of being able to split those up into jobs that don't have to immediately give you a response? Um, yeah, there's several benefits. Um, the first um, one benefit is that simply. Um, it's sort of easier to reason about if you've a if you've a single task as a developer you can see just by reading it um, what it's actually doing rather than having a huge um as you said a, a single function which does the orchestration of all the things within code um so and from a like a logging point of view from a monitoring point of view like say within AWS cloudwatch logs you know exactly um you can go into the 
the functions um, logs just to see exactly um, what happened or what went wrong. Um, if a major benefit is around retries, mm -hmm. so say so say you have a multi-stage um, workflow and one of the say say steps A through A, B, C, and D. So say step A succeeds, step B fails. Um, so you don't want to, if that was a single Lambda function doing, carrying out all those four steps, then um, how would you, how would you would either have to retry it all or you have to build it all into your, your logic, how that gets handled. Um, if you split it up into um, four separate asynchronously invoked Lambdas, um, um, you, you, the Lambda service itself will, will do the retries for you. So in, in my example there, step B, say it fails, um, it can, Lambda will, will, A will have completed successfully, that's done, but B will be automatically retried if you so wish it to be. Um, and yeah, so that, that's another benefit around the um, errors and retries. Um, and the, the obvious, sorry, the, the most obvious one, which I, I forgot to say, it's just around latency. So um, if you have a user facing API call, if this is all behind, um, then the user probably doesn't need to, to wait for all four tasks to complete. Whereas if you just, if you have an API gateway call, right. you can just write it to write it to a queue or write it to you know, a pub sub system and just return to the user and all the rest of that processing happens in the background and the user gets a quick response. Yeah, I know. I totally agree. I think that's one of the, that, that idea of immediate response is huge. I mean, cause everybody wants stuff back quickly. Um, and there's no reason why that that invoice or that credit card has to necessarily be processed immediately. I mean, you submit an order on Amazon that says we've received your order and then you usually get something later on that says, oh, we couldn't yeah. bill your credit card or, or something like that. Um, yeah. The other thing, though, I think that is really great about splitting things up into separate functions um, is this idea of sort of not only the security aspect of it, where each one can be finely grain tuned or finely mm -hmm. tuned, uh, you know, finely tuned security, but also this idea of being able to scale each one of those things independently. Yeah, that's right. Um, so if you have, say, one of your tasks, you um, talks to a downstream system, say in an RDS database or a third-party API, which may not scale as well as serverless services, um, you may want to sort of throttle it. So um, using the async, say, say for the likes of an SQS queue, um, you could use that to throttle your throughput to that system, um, and Equally, so that's sort of scaling down as such. Um, mm -hmm. But but you can also, um, if you don't need to do that, you can use SNS and just have a fan out pattern to to distribute it as widely as possible. Say if you're if you have a task which is splitting out and writing to DynamoDB or something which will can match the scaling that Lambda would give you. Right. Yeah, no, I think, I, I mean, I, I do a talk on this about downstream systems not being able to handle, um, you know, not being able to handle the uh, the amount of pressure that might come from a, a certain uh, from a certain workload. And I think that's actually a really important thing to consider is um, the great thing you have with just putting concurrency on a particular function is to say, look, I only want 50 concurrent connections or I only want 100 concurrent connections. Um, and that mm -hmm. could seriously help when you're trying to throttle against a downstream API um, or a uh, or, or like you said, an RDS cluster or something like that. Um, but that's one of the things, too, that I think is, um, is is where people get a little bit confused. They say, well, normally, if I make a request to an API and I've got to call the billing service, um, you know, 
somewhere in between there, um, if if that thing is being throttled and I have to respond back to the customer and say, hey, I'm you know I'm throttling this, that's that's a bad experience. But with the async piece here and putting a some, you know something in between like SQS for example to um, be able to to store and create message durability. Um, that that is something I think where where people get a little bit lost on on how that kind of works. Yeah, yeah, it it can be quite confusing. And I guess if you, if you want to do a full sort of asynchronous back to the user, like in that that example, you you could even introduce WebSockets. Mm. Um, you could have have the um, the initial API call from the from the client just writing um, to to the queue. Have all your async processing happening server side, and then separately then. Um, do a, do a um, WebSocket push back to the client once it's ready. Um, so. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, all right, so let's let's uh, talk about billing for a second. So how are you seeing with your customers um, sort of their reaction to this pay-per-use billing? Because I think in most cases, you know, we're not afraid of um, these five cent lambda bills, but when you start adding on, uh, when you start adding on API gateway uh, and things like DynamoDB and SQS, I saw an article the other day where you know it was this application where Lambda cost one cent and SQS cost a dollar and eighty three cents. Um, and so again, it gets uh, you know other services besides just Lambda get kind of expensive. So how are your clients seeing this um, and sort of I guess you know planning for for the cost? Yeah, it, it's more with serverless. It's more about the variability than the actual absolute price. So, um, it's it, it gen, it's generally low and it's generally negligible in a lot of in definitely in in pre production scenarios. Um, but it's the the variability of um, especially with with the large asynchronous workloads, which can like fan out to to lots of invocations. So, I a lot of the times the client comes. Because I, I, one of my clients is a they're a dev agency themselves, so they build a lot a lot of apps for with totally different um, workflow patterns. So um, at the start of each project, we would sort of often just it's just in a Excel spreadsheet, just plugging figures in to see based on expected usage or what our current architectural design there, there is, um, what, how much it can be. It could vary quite significantly. Um, yeah, I mean, API gateways is one of the most um, variable of the serverless services, but sometimes clients have existing EC2 infrastructure as well, which which gets hit. But um, yeah, API gateway. Um, I, I know you did an episode recently with the the API gateway team with the the new HTTP APIs. Mm -hmm. So I haven't tried those out. So hopefully that will. I think there is it. 33% of the cost. So yes, hopefully yeah. that will help out on that on that front. A little bit less actually. It's a I think it's a, it's a dollar per million as opposed to 350. So Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I that and and um and and I mean it's it actually you bring up API gateway. Um I mean I think one of the things that we can't lose here and we mentioned this a little bit earlier um but that there are still synchronous use cases, right? Like we're not we we can't mm -hmm. just throw away synchronous altogether. Um and sometimes synchronous might not be um, you know, might not just be the front end web API, like we might need synchronous invocations. Um, and in, in most cases, even an asynchronous process needs to make a synchronous call to something like the Stripe API or maybe to another microservice. So um, mm -hmm. what are some of the pros and cons, though, of using, I mean, we certainly don't want to try to chain synchronous invocations, right? Like we don't want to call our API through API gateway, then make a call to 
um, you know, some other service that makes a call to another service. I mean, decoupling those, um, I think, makes a lot of sense. But you know, can't always get around that. So, like, what are some of the pros and cons of of, of some of those synchronous app, uh, some of those synchronous patterns? Yeah, I guess it's the the client gets an immediate response. That that's sort of if the client needs an immediate response. Um, you can't like if it's just simply fetching from a database that mm-hmm. it has to be synchronous. Uh, if, if it's a GET request, an HTTP API. Um, but it, I guess a, a benefit it's it's off. You could say it's easier to reason about. So from a developer debugging point of view, I still would find that say synchronous um, calling patterns. The logs are generally easy to find. Um, you don't need to look through log files for separate Lambda invocations often. So from that point of view, um, synchronous is still easier um, to to monitor and to debug, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, you could possibly argue that it's maybe easier to author in the first place. Um, well, for developers who, are, who like writing um, JavaScript code or, or Python code or whatever, yeah. rather than lots of YAML to, to configure, those guys would be probably happier writing simple synchronous code. But um, yeah, we try to trying to move folks away from that. But <laughs> um, but yeah, but generally I would recommend if you don't have to, like if you can do it asynchronously, it's do, do it asynchronously, like yeah. write something to, if you've got a HTTP a user API, just write something to a queue or to SNS or to EventBridge or to DynamoDB um, mm-hmm. and yeah, just return and have any other processing done in the background. Yeah, I think especially when it's, when it's post request, right? Any type of write request, you know, you can return something back, even if it's a, you know, if you have to return an ID back to somebody, then generate a UUID and return that and also submit that with the job so that that mm-hmm. gets associated with that job and you can look it up later or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So the, the, um, but I mean, if it's, if it's a get request, right. I mean, there's a lot of caching that you can, that you can do. Um, mm-hmm. I think people don't take advantage of um, the CloudFront uh, caching through API gateways, like in t- how you can actually change the the amount of time something gets cached for, so you can minimize impact on the APIs. There's a whole bunch of interesting tricks that you can do there. Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Stackery. If you're building serverless applications on AWS, you have to give Stackery a look. They've built a next generation SaaS platform that lets you securely develop, deliver, and manage serverless apps quickly, consistently, and at scale. It doesn't matter if you're building Greenfield or refactoring existing monoliths, Stackery streamlines and organizes your AWS SAM and CloudFormation templates, environment configurations, and credentials. This creates a development workflow that not only makes sure everything is properly configured and instrumented, but also increases engineering velocity by 60x. They provide a CLI, VS Code plugin, and IDE extensions that let you locally debug any Lambda in any language or framework, even against your remote cloud resources. Stackery gives you architecture visualization, one-click access to tracing and logs, local debugging, and so much more, letting your team focus on app architectures and business logic, not YAML. Chase, Farah, Danielle, Tim, and the whole team over at Stackery are awesome people, and they've built an incredibly useful product. So for more information or to sign up for a free developer account, go to stackery.io. That's S-T-A-C-K-E-R-Y.io. 
So another thing though that comes up is once you start using multiple Lambda functions is this idea of function composition, right? And so we talked about the asynchronous patterns where sort of one function um, you know, generates an event, maybe that goes to event bridge and then another one is listening to it. But what are your thoughts on Lambdas invoking Lambdas? And there's two ways to do it, synchronously and asynchronously, but maybe your thoughts on each. Okay, um, let's take synchronously first. Um, generally, avoid against this <laughs> but um yeah the reason the reason why it's not I would, I would generally say don't do synchronous lambdas is because um say you've lambda a invokes lambda b and it's waiting on the response mm -hmm. um as soon as lambda as soon as that invocation happens you've now two clock two the clock is running on the invocations of, of, of two two functions so you're, you're paying twice for yeah. um for, for both functions being um, being running um, and also there is a uh, it, it can be quite difficult to give you also two places to look for the logs as well so um, people it, it's who are fond of reusing functions um, like functions at a at a code level rather than the, the lambda function level they may when they're first coming to lambda they may think oh I've got this piece of functionality which I, I want to reuse I can just use I can just create a lambda function for that and call that from all the other Lambda functions right. where I need it. But generally, that's not what you want to do. And just use a code module or a code library um, and and reuse it in that way. Um, so that's the synchronous. Actually, there's one exception where I I have done it, um, invoked it synchronously. That is when I'm using VPC. Um, mm -hmm. Now, it's pretty low. I have a, a, a schedule. I had a use case recently where I have a scheduled job that runs nightly. It's for a SaaS app that sends out nightly emails. Yep. But to do that, it needs to query an RDS database, which is inside of VPC, and send it out to all the users with a certain who match a, a certain where clause. Um, so there's sort of two things going on there. There's a CloudWatch rule to trigger Lambda. Um, then there's a, a database query. And then there's, a, I think I was publishing to SNS or using TSES to send the email at the end. So the what if I just had that as a single Lambda running inside a, um, a VPC, I can't then call the email service or, um, so in that case, I put um, a Lambda inside the VPC just to do the query and mm -hmm. um, the database query and the calling function and um, invoked that, got the result back, and then it was able to um, send the email because it had internet access. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the only sort of exception where I, I think it's valid to do that. But some people may argue that's not even valid. Um, well, no, <laughs> so I actually I actually think that's a I think that's a really good use case. I mean, the only other thing I would suggest is maybe use, um, you know, like the RDS data API um, if you were in uh, if you were in a uh, um, uh, Aurora serverless database, then that yes. way you could yes. use. Uh, and actually, I, that's one of the things that I do. I have a reporting service. I have this pretty, I, I, I think it's a cool setup, where basically all these operational front ends are DynamoDB. They have DynamoDB streams attached to them that replicate the data to an Aurora serverless cluster. Um, and then the, there's a reporting service that runs queries against that um, through the data API. And surprisingly, it's extremely fast um, you know, the data API, it's not, that's not the fastest sometimes when you're doing synchronous stuff, but it, it works, it works pretty well. And then of course it avoids that, that VPC issue. Um, but I, you mentioned this idea of, um, you know, separating functions, you know, like, as you said, maybe, uh, 
that what you might consider code modules or, 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 or code libraries, where like, again, you might have a function that is charge credit card, and you might have another function that is, um, you know, create invoice and using these same examples. But um, th there's, a, there's a really, really good argument. And I know Lego does this. I know that uh, Bustle does this where they create these fat lambdas, right? Where lambdas do more than one thing um, because you need to have that synchronous component. Now, maybe the one I just mentioned is, is probably not the right idea, but there are times I think where you, you don't want to be calling lambdas between lambdas in most cases. Um, but if you do find yourself needing two separate pieces of logic that need to happen asynchronously, this idea of fat lambdas is I think really interesting where you just put these two things together and say, I'm going to use, I'm going to run these two snippets of code in the same Lambda function because I get the benefit from that. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I would do it like that. Um, I don't even know if I would, cause sometimes I guess fat lambdas can be misunderstood to be, I wouldn't even call that a fat lambda as such as, I guess it's just, uh, um, yeah. Um, well, I break I break lambdas I break lambdas into three categories. I have the yeah. single purpose function, right, which is the yeah. one that we um, you know that that I think we try to favor. Then you have the fat lambda that takes multiple bits or multiple actions and puts them into a single function um, to optimize yeah. it. Then you have the lambda lift, which is sort of yes. your entire application runs in a single okay. lambda function. Um, okay. So I, I do I think fat lambdas are a are an optimization um, and not necessarily um, not necessarily a bad pattern because. Mm -hmm. sometimes you you need to do that oh yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and yeah there's no point in being dogmatic about just i would generally say single purpose lambda functions but yeah if it's if it's something which will always have two natural steps right. and you can't really it doesn't make sense to to split them apart into their own lambdas then yeah go for and it and when it has to be synchronous um yeah, yeah so the other the other time i think that a synchronous api call to another uh, to another Lambda function isn't the worst, is if you're doing inter-service communication and you need a synchronous request. So if you, yeah. um, if you have a, a customer service and you have an order service, sometimes that order service needs to look up that customer. Um, and when mm -hmm. that happens, you definitely don't want to route that back out through an API gateway or something like that. That just yep. gets overly complex. Um, mm -hmm. You do build coupling in, but you build coupling in on all kinds of things. Because think about if you're calling the Stripe API, or you're calling the Twilio API, your service is bound to or is 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 uh, coupled to that other API. And I think that's okay in certain circumstances, as long as you have the fallback methods in place. So if you were going to, say, process an order, and the order API or the order service has to call the customer API, um, that is fine, as long as you, again, maintain some sort of contract between the two. But also knowing that the uh, order AP or the order service could fail that particular call and then retry, you know, maybe once that other service comes back up. And of course, you'd want to do circuit breakers and all that kind of stuff in there. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's that's a totally valid pattern. Um, yeah, so if you have the two two separate services, I guess, um, if you don't want to introduce the coupling, you could somehow have an event-based model where you, each each um, service keeps a, a copy of of the other's data as such, so it doesn't have to do those synchronous calls. But sometimes that that introduces problems itself, just keeping the data in sync as well. Well, you got to get um, you got to get the data the first time, right? So I mean, it's okay to maintain a copy of the data, but you still have to get that data the first time. Yeah, well, I guess you could have sync. They could have an event based pattern where um, 
the 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 service with the data in the first place could publish an event and yes yeah, yeah. you, could, you could transfer it um, right. asynchronously like that but um yeah I, i'm not a massive fan of that approach either so sometimes it is just easier if um to to do that make that synchronous call as long as you don't have too many if it's one or two between a service that's okay once it gets more once you have more sort of synchronous inter-service channels then that's where you're sort of losing the advantages of having microservices at that stage. Right. Yeah, I agree. Because too much coupling definitely can can cause some problems. So so what about what about the asynchronous calls of other Lambda functions? Because one of the complaints that you sort of hear about this is even if you are sort of chaining Lambda functions and everything is happening asynchronously, um, you know, that you are you are introducing a lot of coupling and then you really reduce the amount of reuse um, that you get from a single Lambda function. I can I can understand the reasons for that. Um, I guess um, I don't know if you're alluding to Lambda. There's Lambda destinations recently, which which have um, a few months ago um, AWS announced it. So by that you can configure any asynchronously invoked Lambda functions. You can configure another Lambda function to always to take the result of the the, the first invoked function and pass that into the event of the next one. Um, that coupling I I can see it, but there's um, from a reuse point of view, I, I'm not sure. Can you maybe directly? I think you can still synchronously call the, you the could. function. Yeah, you could. Uh, and actually, in, in that scenario, um, and you won't get the side effect of of the the destination being evoked. Right. Yeah. And I was, and, and I should clarify this too, because essentially, what I was, the point that I'm getting at is that if you write it, if you hard code it into your code, right, and so every lambda function that gets, um, uh, any, every function that gets. Uh, invoked, regardless of whether it's synchronous or asynchronous, is always going to have um, a hard-coded um, next step, right? I mean, you could put a whole yeah. bunch of logic in there if you wanted to or whatever, but there's always that problem of that function getting invoked synchronously, asynchronously, and then something happening where then that next call doesn't happen, which is where Lambda Destinations comes in. I love Lambda Destinations. I think it's a great pattern to have another Lambda function or uh, in most cases, Event Bridge or something like that um, respond or, or, or be able to handle the output of, of an asynchronously invoked function. Um, but mm -hmm. I'm, I think I'm talking more about sort of hard coding, hard coding that workflow into Lambda functions to say, when this Lambda function is done, then it calls this Lambda function. And then when this yeah. Lambda function is done, then it calls this Lambda function. I think you introduce a whole bunch of challenges with that approach. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess you do. And I guess there's, there is step functions, which I get, which um, for certain workflows, that makes sense to solve that problem. So if you have a, if you have a, a, a workflow which is pretty well defined for, in a bit like a business workflow, um, it may make sense to you still you could put individual chain individual lambda functions together via a step functions um, state machine, right? And um, and and from that you can still invoke the individual lambda functions separately if you need to. Um, otherwise, you, or you can use the the step functions to to compose um, to pass the output of one to the input of another, or to fan out or sort of more more complex mechanisms if you need to. Right, right, yeah. And I and step functions again. I say this all the time, but for for complex workflows, step functions are great. And again, for function reuse, like, and that's one of those things where if you think about your traditional monolithic application and you say, I got to run, process the order, charge the credit card, create the invoice, do all these things and all those steps, and you need all of those to complete and you need that guarantee, 
Um, if you can do that asynchronously, meaning that you don't have to immediately respond to the client and say all the stuff is done, um, which again, the more complex systems get, you know, the easier it is to, uh, or the harder it is to respond in a in a short amount of time. Um, then using something like step functions is great because then you can basically set up your retries separately. Um, you can you can uh, you know if if something fails or a whole pattern of them fails or a whole bunch of them fails, you can implement a saga pattern and you can go back and unwind all of them. So there are really there are a lot of really cool things that you can do um, with with step functions, and they're all invoked synchronously too. So you're, you're you know exactly what's happening um, as that same yeah. machine is processing it. All right. So yeah. when we get beyond just regular or I guess basic messaging between um, systems in distributed systems and, and more so in serverless systems, um, you know, we we're, we've been talking about passing messages back and forth and invoking you know one lambda function at a time or things like that. You kind of mentioned uh, polling or you you mentioned SQS um, and some fan out and some of those things, but but that's another thing that is a very powerful way to communicate or to build distributed systems is to use queuing or streaming or some of these things. So we obviously have SQS queues, we have um, uh, we have Kinesis streams, and we have you know DynamoDB streams, things like that. So just what are the you know just I guess for the benefit of the listeners, like what what are the differences between those, and and like maybe when and why would you use different ones? Yeah, the benefits of Kinesis is that. Um, you get a long backlog of events. So um, as an example, I have a, a SaaS product, which which has website click tracking. So events coming through from different websites, um, like at a high throughput. So we need to caption quickly. Um, but the processing doesn't need to happen that quickly. So the processing can happen gradually. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a long backlog. It gives you a long backlog potentially if um, of events. And it's similar to the way a queue, a queue does. Um, but unlike a queue where you just have a single processor and um, pulling items off the queue, um, with the stream you can have multiple um, like subscribers. So in a, in a way, it's, it's it's sort of like a combination between a queue and a, a pub sub in that respect. Um, we can have multiple subscribers like processing messages off the stream, um, although other consumers can can consume that same message. Mm -hmm. um, so. Based on that, um, DynamoDB streams is slight is similar in that if you already have an application, you're using DynamoDB as your application database, um, but you need to um, react based on certain data that gets put into your system. DynamoDB streams might be a good fit um, in that it gives you an asynchronous event model based on an item is added or updated or deleted in your DynamoDB table. Um, you can then, in a separate um, job, um, get notified about that event and then do whatever processing you need. Um, I guess a, a drawback of using um, DynamoDB streams is that the, the event schema that you get is quite, um, it's quite specific to, um, to DynamoDB. So mm -hmm. it's in like in your DynamoDB item, you, your consuming service needs to know the effectively your, your database schema. Um, whereas it's not in like a nice friendly domain domain event schema. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing too is that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the, the, the ability to process the same message twice um, is sometimes something you want to do with Kinesis or with DynamoDB. So you might want to have multiple consumers reading that same backlog um, uh, as opposed to something like SQS where you can have multiple 
uh, lambda functions or parallel lambda functions reading those things off the queue. Um, but once you read the message and remove it from the queue, it's gone. Um, so it just takes the message out of the queue. Whereas those streaming services, you know, like you said, they actually, they give you, a, they store the events for a certain amount of time. You can go back and you can kind of read, um, you can kind of read through those things. So, um, so yeah. So, I mean, again, it depends. I mean, like when, when would you suggest somebody use say an SQSQ over Kinesis? I guess in most cases, um, SQS, I would default to, if you have a job, um, like, which needs one-to-one -one processing, you're only ever going to have one, um, one downstream processor, then SQS makes sense, but, um, it's, it's proper serverless pricing pay per use, um, which unlike Kinesis, um, Kinesis charges like by the R based mm -hmm. on how, how long it has a shard based um, pricing model. Um, so you're paying by the R rather than per use. Yeah. Um, so in general, if I've used in my applications for, for my own and for clients, I would have used SQS a lot more than I have Kinesis. Um, but I guess if you have that large volume of, of events coming in um, that you need multiple processor to need multiple subscribers to and then kinesis certainly makes sense in that respect makes sense all right so let so let me ask you one more question um about you know developers building asynchronous applications so a lot of things to think about right a lot of pitfalls whenever you're building a new type of uh, system and of course a lot of pitfalls in distributed systems so what are what are sort of the main things that somebody that's now building things asynchronously um really has to think about like what are the what are the big ones you have to be wary about uh, yep, there, there are a few things. Um, so number one, I would say distributed tracing. So um, if you if you have a, a multi-step um, use case where there's a lot of data processing going on in the background, you probably now have multiple log files to search through. If um, so, there are um, that if you were doing that synchronously, you just you could just look in the one place more often than not. Um, so there are um, strategies around. Um, using correlation IDs um, within each message so that the same, so say in CloudWatch, you can you can query on um, for that correlation ID and get an aggregate of any log log entries across your different log groups, which, which have that correlation ID within it. But you need to build that into your application, your Lambda code that doesn't come out of the box. Um, another consideration is um, testing, writing automated tests. I've, it is it's just harder for asynchronous workflows so if you're writing a synchronous say i write in node.js and jest test framework mm -hmm. um, so if i was if i have a synchronous lambda it, it's generally pretty easy to write an integration test for that you just hit the hit the endpoint or invoke the lambda function or whatever and just verify the response um, um but if you have a multi-step um if you have a multi-step multi-step asynchronous um, data processing workflow, then you it, you need to do test each one of those individually. Doing an actual end, writing an end-to-end -end test is difficult without just like having wait a step which just waits for until background um, processes have you hope have completed and then you can do whatever verification steps, steps you need. Um, and yeah, and just generally um, understandability. It's not a thing in itself, but it just... For if you've got a new developer on your team and a lot of develop um, teams that I've worked with are sort of more like a full stack web web developers, but um, that which are used to monolithic sort of synchronous workflows, mm -hmm. they're 
get a new guy on your team um, and that's just explaining to them how um, how each piece of the each piece of the pie fits together. That's just going to take time and documentation really is the only solution to that. So, um, so yeah, it's just good documentation is important when you've got these asynchronous workflows. Yeah. Well, I mean, the good news is, is that distributed tracing, there's a lot of options out there now um, to do that, but uh, writing good tests and writing good documentation, unfortunately, that's a challenge, I think, for most, for most organizations. So anyways, well, thank you so much. Let's, let's leave it there. So Paul, thanks again for, for being here. Uh, really appreciate uh, you sharing, you know, all your serverless knowledge. The amount of stuff that you've been writing is awesome. Um, you know, really enjoy it. Uh, you know, new tips every, you know, couple times a week. It, it's great. So, um, how do uh, listeners find out more about you if they if they want to, you know, subscribe to your newsletter or some of those other things? Yep, that's great, Jeremy. Um, thanks for having me. It's been. Um, you can get me on social media on Twitter and LinkedIn at at Paul Swale, S W A I L. And you can get my website. It's serverlessfirst.com. Um, my newsletter's there too. Awesome. All right. Well, I will get all that into the show notes. Thanks again. Super. Thank you, Jeremy. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Paul Swell for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, Stackery. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 41. For more serverless chats, subscribe, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.